Welcome to the Tim Talks Politics Podcast, a conversation on government, citizenship, and America's place in the world. I'm your host, Tim Malash. Let's talk some politics. back to Tim Talks Politics podcast. And today we are looking at part four of our series on the U.S. Constitution. This episode and the next, we'll be going over the Constitution's 27 amendments. And here we're going to cover the first 10 amendments that were ratified in the 1790s as a package deal and became known as the Bill of Rights. Whose rights do you ask? Well, yours, mine, the individual states. The Bill of Rights is an explicit affirmation of those areas of public life that the new federal government was to keep its hands off of. It was the promise of a Bill of Rights being added to the Constitution that overcame anti-federalist opposition and eventually ratified the Constitution and its seven articles, which we looked at in episodes one, two, and three. So if you value your civil liberties, you actually have America's anti-federalists to thank for them. So let's dive into what the Anti-Federalists were advocating in these first 10 amendments. Amendment one, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Amendment one is typically seen as kind of like the civil liberties amendment. This is out, this outlines the many freedoms that we uh, enjoy, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, the press, uh, the ability, the right of assemblage, the uh, the ability to petition our government for, uh, for kind of like correcting problems or redress of grievances, as this says. So this could be a podcast unto itself. Like I said, I'm not interested in kind of giving you the uh, kind of like the jurisprudence on constitutional law. I'm not a legal scholar. This is really just a basic read through to kind of briefly outline the basic parameters here. So while there's a lot of depth uh, uh, to the amendment, there's the First Amendment, there's a lot of uh, a broad and deep case history as the amendment has been interpreted, reinterpreted over time. I want to just kind of give you kind of like a on its face reading. So first off, it's really important to note the first phrase here, Congress shall make no law respecting establishment of religion. So, you know, in today's world, uh, we generally take the freedom of religion for granted, and we take the idea of the separation of church and state for granted, and that should and that that it applies at every level of government from a city government all the way up to the to the national government. This is actually not how the original Constitution was written or how the First Amendment was originally understood. This was entirely about Congress and the national government making laws that affected the whole country. The national government, Congress, could make no law establishing religion. But some states actually did have established or officially recognized uh Christian denominations that were the official denomination of the state. Uh, these have largely gone by the wayside as states have either new states brought in constitutions that uh, that more or less uh, had the same wording as this amendment. You know, no law respecting the establishment of a religion. Uh, there uh, then also there's been precedent set about that, and so religion and any kind of official capacity or level of official recognition has pretty much been disestablished uh, from every level of government. Uh, so it's affected by not just the federal constitutions, but the several state constitutions as well. 
The other thing to note here is that in the modern interpretation of the First Amendment, it's generally accepted that uh, that this is getting at separation of church and state, that the um, the government should not get involved in matters of religion. But part of getting of not getting involved in matters of religion includes not prohibiting the free exercise. Now, now there's a whole case uh, a body of casework in constitutional law about certain religious practices that are kind of limited or outright banned uh, in, because they violate other civil rights or uh, human rights. And so there's uh, there are some limitations on that free exercise clause, but those limitations are actually few and far between. In general, though, this First Amendment basically tells Congress, keep your hands off religion, just stay out of the way of it. Uh, it's not really about the state I'm sorry, it's not really about religion staying uninvolved in politics or the state. It's really about the state staying uninvolved in religion. And this is a carryover from the uh, European countries that, you know, in the 1700s, it was well-known history at that point. It was practically contemporary history that states and their state-sanctioned religions uh, in Europe had fomented large wars that had torn the continent apart in the very recent past. And so religious conflict, uh, because it got conflated with political conflict, was all too familiar uh, to the founding fathers. And so they sought to kind of limit that uh, by keeping uh, keeping Congress out of religious affairs or out of taking sides in religious affairs. All right, and then we're also very familiar with the freedom of speech uh, and press and the right of people to assemble. Again, this is all about Congress uh, recognizing this right. This isn't about the state governments recognizing this right. They can carve out their own parameters, and we'll talk a little bit more about this as well. But, um, you know, like I said earlier, state governments over the years have modified or adapted or adopted their own constitutions uh, to more or less reflect the civil liberties here. So you can pretty much enjoy a certain level of freedom of speech uh, all the way from the federal level all the way down to the state and local level as well. All right, Amendment 2. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Ah, yes, the ever-controversial Second Amendment and the issue of gun rights. So again, like the uh, First Amendment, there's a broad and deep case history on the federal courts, especially the Supreme Court uh, ruling on this. One of the most recent uh, keynote um, rulings by the, uh, by the federal government has been on uh, the right of individuals to keep firearms, and that has more or less been enshrined in uh, jurisprudence and in constitutional jurisprudence. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's a open-ended right to bear arms. You can't, you know, you can't have a tank parked in your driveway, for example. And certainly, there is a ongoing debate over uh, what kind of firearms people should be allowed to keep in the uh, in their own residence and their own private residence. So the basic idea though, so we're not gonna get into that case study, but just the basic idea of the second amendment is at the time of the constitution, the founding fathers feared the rise of a tyrant, right? That's how they, that's why they declared independence. That's how they viewed the King of England. And one of the ways they saw the King of England as advancing his tyranny upon the colonies was through his military, through a professional military, a standing military, a permanent military. And so very quickly, the uh, early Congress took steps to make sure that America had no permanent land military. They were OK with the Navy. They recognized that, you know, you have to kind of like maintain ships over time. You can't like build a ship and dismantle it. And they also recognized that it was needed for protecting the coast and trade on an ongoing basis. So 
having a standing navy was one thing. Having a standing army was entirely another in the mind of the founding fathers. And that was because those troops could go into homes. Those troops could uh, actively oppress people in a way that a navy was very limited in doing. So the founding fathers envisioned a republic in which the, uh, the defense of the land was basically relied on militia, state militia that was more or less uh, localized. It was more or less um, is more or less maintained by the several states themselves. And any standing army that was maintained would be very, very, very small just to kind of uh, keep a core of experienced officers in the event of war. That was kind of the vision here. And so to have those kinds of localized defense forces, you would have to have, you know, people who were armed, people who maintained uh, the defense of not just their communities, but also their individual homes. So the role of the militia has changed over time. Uh, in fact, now uh, the militias have been kind of more formally integrated into the defense structure of the United States in the form of the National Guard. But even here, it seems that the Supreme Court and its interpretation of the Second Amendment still recognizes that there's an inherent right of self-defense for individuals and that there's kind of like this formal militia that's recognized as the National Guard and something of an informal militia that's recognized in the natural right of the individual to self-defense, both giving access, giving the citizen access to uh, to weapons of some kind. And that's kind of where the, at least at the level of jurisprudence and interpretation of law, things seem to have come down on. Of course, there's a very vigorous debate over just the extent to which an individual can maintain arms for self-defense. And this certainly doesn't apply to the very informal and oftentimes barely legal uh, militias, the independent militias that you see in the kind of like, on, especially on like the right wing side of the political spectrum. That's not what this use of the term militia refers to here. Militias were understood by the founding fathers to be part of the local government, part of the state government. They were an arm of the state government. Governors could call them up. And so it was expected that each militia member would supply his own uh, weapon and ammunition. So, uh, and maybe be supplied with ammunition on an ongoing basis in the event of an extended conflict. But uh, at least initially, it was, in, it was assumed that individual militia members would kind of supply their own uh, weapons and ammo. So uh, the militias that we have today uh, generally are not that kind of militia. They actually seek to be independent of the state structures. And so that's a very, uh, that's a very different um, issue. All right, Amendment 3. No soldier shall in time of peace be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in, in a manner to be prescribed by law. So, like I said earlier, uh, with the Second Amendment, one of the reasons or one of the things that the Founding Fathers feared most, especially the Anti-Federalists, one of the things they feared most about a strong central government was it, and a standing army was its ability to oppress people. And this was one of the ways the British oppressed uh, the colonies, or at least how they viewed the British oppressing the colonies, was by uh, the Quartering Act, uh, which gave the uh, British military the authority to basically just uh, quarter soldiers in private residencies and expect the owners of those homes to basically supply the soldiers with bedding, food, basically all the uh, bear the cost of of maintaining this standing military. This was something that the founding fathers were completely against. It it, it actually shows up as a as a charge against King George the Third and the Declaration of Independence that that was what his soldiers had been doing, and so it was seen as a real uh, major abuse of state power. 
And so here in the Third Amendment, uh, the Anti-Federalists just wanted there to be no ambiguity about the role soldiers would have in relationship to the civilian populace. They were there for defense in times of peace. They should not even be near uh, civilian areas, much less living with them. And they leave a loophole there unless, you know, the owner consents to it. Uh, you know, maybe it's your friend, maybe it's your visiting relative, right? Uh, but in a time of war, they allowed for troops staying in different places, but even then they would have to be strictly uh, prescribed by rules and regulations. Amendment four, the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and no warrants shall issue, but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly per describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. This again goes to the checking back of potential tyranny. And again, this is growing out of the experience the founding fathers had under British occupation at different points in colonial history. So here it's about the rights of persons in terms of privacy, property, et cetera, not violating uh, the security of those things. And this gives us also the issue of having a warrant and making sure that, um, that any authorities who seek to search your person, car, uh, other vehicle or home have a warrant specifying that that is that they have a reason to search this and, and everything like that. Now, one of the things that has become more of a uh, issue in terms of rights of privacy now has been with the advent of the internet, the blinding fast movement of data, the advent of international terrorism, there's a, there's a very robust debate going on in terms of how do you kind of like counteract terrorist activity in the ether, especially when things are moving around uh, in basically packets of information in non-linear ways, how do you have a warrant for that? How do you get a warrant for that? And so warrants have, especially in those areas, have become a little more flexible in terms of uh, what's being looked for, what's being searched. And this is, of course, uh, this is, of course, has led to all sorts of controversy around uh, the National Security Council and the uh, National Security Agency and its uh, its handling of user data from uh, different from across the internet and uh, the concerns about uh, scooping up data of innocent civilians and therefore violating their Fourth Amendment rights. So this is a particularly uh, interesting, concerning, and significant area of Fourth Amendment discussions right now. Amendment 5. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia, when in actual service in time of war, public danger. Just a side note, that's because that would be covered by military courts. Nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb. That's double jeopardy. Nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. So this is about closing all the possible loopholes that could be used to punish political opponents. It was not uncommon in the courts of Europe for those who fell into disfavor with the crown heads of Europe or other highly placed nobles uh, to suddenly find themselves thrown in prison on trumped up charges, find their family lands or estates uh, entailed to the, to the state or taken over by the 
uh, by the government. And so it was a, in the eyes of the founding fathers, especially the anti-federalists, it was a uh, open invitation uh, for corruption and abuse of state power to not have any strong controls on the rights of persons when it comes to accusations of crime, uh, when it comes to their uh, protection of their property. And note here, the not being deprived of life, liberty, or property, that's a very Lockean phrase, that life, liberty, or property comes right out of John Locke's treatise of government as being kind of like fundamental natural natural rights. And so the anti-federalists here are very concerned with making sure that those natural rights are preserved in recognizing that those are natural rights that transcend the prerogatives of government. And so they, so they recognize that as a serious thing. And so if you're going to remove someone's life, liberty, or property, uh, you have to have a legal process for that. There has to be a kind of like a rules-based process through which the taking of any one of those things or the infringing on any one of those things is uh, is justified. So that's the whole idea of a court process. And we'll get more into what that court process will look like. It's the whole idea of having uh, due process in courts in general. And then that final clause, nor shall private property be taken for public use. This is speaking to eminent domain. It acknowledges that eminent domain can be used, uh, that that the civil authorities can basically take over someone's property in a, in a real sense and in some considerations. But again, they're recognizing you have to have due process and you have to make sure that someone's compensated for the loss. You just can't you know, build a road over their house and expect them to go find somewhere else to live. That's not going to be okay. Might be okay in some other countries, but it's definitely not okay in the U.S. Amendment six. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. Which district shall have been previously ascertained by law? That goes back to Article 1. And to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistant of counsel for his defense. So this is rights of the accused. This is if someone has been accused for a crime, it, you know, is being brought up before a judge to answer for that crime. This is basically saying, hey, this is what the process should look like. It should be a speedy and public trial. So public is uh, really important. Most people can walk into a city or county court and observe trials. Uh, it's not just public to the jury and the legal teams and the judge and the bailiffs. You know, the public can also observe these things. And so it's open for people to see and observe. It's for purposes of transparency. The other thing here is speedy. Now there's no interpretation of what that should mean. But a current and pretty valid um, critique of our current criminal court system is that the, the overload of cases is starting to, um, starting to make uh, cases less speedy, starting to make trials less speedy. And uh, criminals are, can languish, or I should say accused criminals, alleged criminals, uh, can languish in jail for long periods of time until awaiting their case to come to trial. And so there's a serious concern here in the current American system as to whether or not uh, those public trials are happening in a speedy manner. So it's well worth considering what might have been understood to be meant by speedy. Obviously, this was in a time period of horse and buggy and rough roads. So uh, they probably weren't thinking 24 hours, uh, but they probably weren't thinking 
you know, months either. So it would be kind of interesting to think what founding fathers understood to be uh, speedy. What they generally were hoping for, though, is that or aiming at was that someone, again, would not be thrown to jail for a trumped up crime, that they wouldn't be held for over long periods of time just to make them, you know, just to make a point or something like that. This is about making sure that if anybody goes into jail, they're going in there for a stated reason and that they have a opportunity to respond to the accusations against them in a timely and public manner. So Amendment 6 really puts the onus of making accusations for crime onto the government, whether it's the municipal authorities, whether it's the state authorities, whether it's the federal authorities, they have to demonstrate that there's a justified reason for putting someone in jail. This gives rise to the whole concept of, you know, the accused is innocent until proven guilty. And Amendment 6 is kind of a kind of embodies or defines that concept pretty well. Amendment 7, in suits at common law where the value in controversy shall exceed $20, the right of trial by jury shall be preserved, and no fact tried by a jury shall be otherwise reexamined in any court of the United States than according to the rules of the common law. In other words, if you are suing somebody for a chunk of property, an amount of money, uh, you can you know, settle in court, settle out of court, you can settle through arbitration, you can also sell in this case, by jury, uh, is that if you want to just make your argument before a group of your peers, you can, uh, and that once a jury has made a decision, uh, you know, no judge gets to just uh, unilaterally override that. There is the appeals process that can be uh, that can be had, but the general idea here is that uh, is that once a jury establishes a fact in court that people abide by that rule. This is to prevent people of uh, from losing parties in a civil suit from jumping from court to court just so they can find a judge to basically do their bidding. Uh, this was a way of checking back against the abuse of the judicial system that way. Amendment 8. Excessive bail shall not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual, unusual punishments be afflicted. This is a pretty self-explanatory amendment. It's basically if someone's in jail, they're there for a reason, and uh, and it's on the state to ensure that that reason is made public and that reason is made known. But then they also go the next step to once someone's been convicted of a crime, they are not punished unduly for it. So this is actually a very humane perspective, uh, considering how you know crime and punishment was carried out in some of the European countries at the time. Now that being said, uh, this was a time a time and place of uh, where someone could be hung or otherwise executed for certain crimes. And certainly we're not going to do public uh, executions now and we don't do public hanging. So hanging was not necessarily a cruel and unusual punishment then. It would definitely be considered cruel and unusual now. So there's there's definitely been some shifts in what's considered cruel and unusual. But what we should note here is that the idea behind it is still a true principle. And that principle is that uh, one, the punishment should fit the crime. It should not be unduly unfair. You know, you shouldn't compound one person's injustice by uh, injustice on the part of the state. That's the first point. But the second point is that it holds out the possibility that an individual uh, can be reformed, right? That an individual who's committed a crime uh, can be reformed. And so you don't want to unduly punish a small crime, a misdemeanor, 
and uh, and maybe turn that person into a larger criminal because they no longer feel that they have a place in society or something of that nature. And this is so it's kind of interesting to consider what some of the philosophy might be behind it. And it is kind of like a consideration for the humanity of an individual, even a convicted uh, criminal, is that they're still a human being, still capable of change uh, and still can be uh, reformed in some manner. So it's interesting to think of Amendment 8, not just in terms of protecting the rights of the prisoner and the rights of, of the criminal in some respect, but it's also uh, making a pretty uh, elevated statement about their humanity. Amendment 9, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. So this is kind of like an open-ended catch-all, basically saying, hey, this is not an exhaustive list. These are just the ones we're mostly concerned about. So it's kind of interesting to consider, okay, what are some of those other rights being retained by the people? Because we actually have now a big discussion on civil rights. So the civil rights might be uh, things uh, that we do as citizens. So, you know, something like the right to vote. Um, maybe, you know, that's not mentioned here in the Bill of Rights, but Amendment 9 is basically saying, hey, just because voting's not mentioned here in the Bill of Rights doesn't mean that you can just deny that to people. Uh, so that would be uh, one such uh, possibility. Uh, but then that also raises the question of what's considered a right. You know, how do we understand rights? Are they natural rights? Are they positive rights that are kind of like articulated uh, by the government itself? And uh, this actually is a kind of like places the Constitution at a unique time in the history of ideas. Uh, some scholars will note that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution both uh, were very much natural law documents, they affirmed the idea of natural rights. So go back up to that reference to life, liberty, and property earlier. Uh, the founding fathers generally affirmed that idea. But in the general stream of philosophical discussion about politics and rights and government uh, at that time in the late 18th century, early 19th century, the discussion was shifting away from natural rights to what are called positive rights. In other words, rights that are actually defined and conferred by the state. Uh, not necessarily by nature or nature's God. And so you have two understandings of the word rights here. You have an understanding that these rights are inherent to the individual on the basis of their humanity, uh, that they're not necessarily something that a state can give and take away. It is just theirs by virtue of their humanity. And then you have this view of rights that says, well, no, that a right is something that can be conferred by government and by extension or by implication and also removed uh, by the government. So you had this kind of tension between which is it? Uh, the Constitution here seems to suggest maybe it's both. Maybe there's two groups of rights we're working with. Uh, and Amendment 9 kind of leaves that, uh, leaves that possibility open. Amendment 10, the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution nor prohibited by it to the states are reserved to the states respectively or to the people. In other words, in case we missed anything, doesn't mean you get to limit it. So this is a real strong open-ended uh, amendment by the Anti-Federalists to basically make sure that there is an interpretation of Articles 1 through 7 that is kind of like strict control. It's a minimalist interpretation of federal power. Essentially, um, if the Constitution explicitly says that the federal government can do something, they can do it. If it does not explicitly say something, then that should be something for the states or the people to decide. So it's a very uh, surprisingly, in many respects, a surprisingly open-ended uh, statement uh, for the Constitution, but doesn't seem to have um, doesn't seem to have 
really prevented the country from growing or adding states or functioning as a as a nation. Obviously, there's been you know major issues that have divided the country over time, often along states' rights, uh, civil war, and the rights of states to uh, to manage their slave trades uh, or respective slave trade uh, was definitely a major part of the Civil War. And many of the uh, secessionist uh, leaders in the South did articulate that slavery was something that they had by right as states, according to Amendment 10. They kind of missed the uh, other elements of the of the Constitution in Articles 1 through 7 that kind of spoke to the end of a slave trade, but because it was never explicitly rejected, it gave the uh, Southern leaders the opening to appeal to Amendment 10 at, in a in an effort to keep their slaves. But uh, so Amendment 10 is you can see it as being something that's caused some mischief in uh, in American history, particularly when it comes to the Civil War. Or you could see it as something that's actually given states quite a bit of uh, room to maintain uh, their uniqueness as states uh, down to the present age. I mean, this has been what has allowed the different states in the midst of a coronavirus to approach the virus and handling it uh, differently based on the needs and abilities of their of their uh, unique capacities. Uh, you know how California manages uh, a, corona- a virus like the coronavirus in a densely populated state versus how, say, Wyoming handles it is going to look very different. And so Amendment 10 preserves the ability of states to kind of choose different policy paths as they see fit, as their capacities uh, allow. So going into our conversation starter for today, or the question I like to kind of close out that main segment with is looking at specifically amendments nine and 10 and this idea that states and individuals actually retain certain rights. It might be helpful to think what rights do individuals and states retain today? Now, there are, like I said earlier, there are debates over things like, is education a right? Is healthcare a right? What does that mean if it's a right? Uh, what, what can we require from the government if that were the case? Those are things that are still being debated. But for now, let's just think in more concretely, what actual rights do individuals and states retain today? As in, when we say retain, they can actually do, they can actually exercise. Uh, What would that look like? I'll post this question as a discussion thread on the uh, the website. It won't be with the show notes, but it will be in the subscribers only portion uh, of of the website. And so I'll make sure I include a link in the show notes to that. All right. For Additional resources, if you'd like to dive into the Bill of Rights, I'll be sure to provide you in the show notes with links to the the text of the amendments, along with the annotated uh, Constitution that Congress provides, uh, that the U.S. Congress provides, and uh, links to the previous episodes on the Constitution, so you can kind of catch up to the context that these amendments are meant to, uh, to address. And then I'll also share a... Uh, a website that I came across while doing research for this episode. It's the Bill of Rights Institute. It's billofrights.org, or I'm sorry, billofrightsinstitute.org. And this is kind of a cool organization because their focus is on the Constitution, but specifically Bill of Rights. And it's an educational website. It's designed specifically for teachers and students who are 
learning about this. And so if, if you are preparing for a coming school year where you're having to learn this, either for AP U.S. government, uh, for a college course or what have you, uh, whether you're an instructor or a student, check it out. There might be some really helpful in, uh, information there for you. To conclude, uh, I have two quotes for you for, for today, and they both address the role of liberty in the American political system and in the American political culture. And this is important because the Bill of Rights is about defining what American liberty was going to look like. That's what the Anti-Federalists were concerned about. Uh, one of the great Anti-Federalists is, you might know him, is Patrick Henry, the Virginian statesman, who famously said before the American Revolution, give me liberty or give me death. The uh, After the revolution, Patrick Henry kind of emerged as a member of the Anti-Federalist Party. No surprise there. Uh, he was a big supporter and uh, big advocate of liberty. And so the Bill of Rights could be understood in that context of what does it mean to be a free people? What does liberty look like uh, in an American context where we also have state governments, national government, city government, etc. So here are two founding fathers speaking at different points in time in relationship to the Constitution, trying to articulate what liberty looks like and how it functions in a political society. John Adams in 1765 says this, liberty must at all hazards be supported. We have a right to it derived from our maker, but if we had not, our fathers have earned and bought it for us at the expense of their ease, their estates, their pleasure, and their blood. So John Adams is recognizing here that there's a natural right for liberty. So hearkening back to that life, liberty, and property idea. But he also kind of says, hey, you know, if we want to think about it in positivist terms where liberty is defined and ascribed to people kind of like in a socially constructed way, uh, he's basically saying, Justice demands that we have liberty because our ancestors basically acted to ensure that we had liberty. So that's kind of the argument he's making there, that liberty has to be a part of the American uh, system uh, as a result of that, historically or by virtue of natural rights. James Wilson, writing in 1790, so just after the writing of the um, Constitution and in the midst of the debate over the Bill of Rights and what would be uh, in it, he argues for liberty. And so he would argue for the Bill of Rights this way. Without liberty, law loses its nature and its name and becomes oppression. Without law, liberty also loses its nature and its name and becomes licentiousness. It's very common to think that liberty just means kind of like an open-ended freedom. But James Wilson here says, no, that's not the case. Uh, liberty interacts with law. So this is where he's trying to explore how law that is you know, put down by a government and liberty, which is retained as a natural right by the people, interact in a political society. He basically says liberty keeps law from becoming oppression. Law keeps liberty from becoming, you know, just like narcissistic licentiousness, basically, where someone just does whatever they want, you know, consequences be damned kind of thing. So fascinating concept to think about. How does liberty fit into the American system? The Bill of Rights was kind of the first articulation of that in any kind of uh, legal, formal way, you might say. All right, that does it for today. I will see you next time on the Tim Talks Politics podcast to discuss the remainder of the amendments of the U.S. Constitution. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the Tim Talks Politics podcast. 
Thank you so much for joining the conversation whenever and wherever you're listening from. If you're in a generous mood, I'd love it if you would leave a review of the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps to improve the show and increase its visibility in the marketplace of ideas. And please be sure to check out the show notes at timtalkspolitics.com where you can find additional content and subscribe to my newsletter, The Weekly Brief. This is Tim Malash. Until next time, have a great week, and I will see you again on the Tim Talks Politics Podcast. Thank you.